Hello, Australia. Welcome to episode number 10 of the Layback Podcast. I'm Jackson Allen, and this is a podcast about Australian climbers and their stories. In this episode, I interview Christopher Glastonbury, a Queensland climber and mechanical engineer that describes himself as a trad climber that likes to boulder between rests. He lived, worked, and climbed in Norway for over five years, and he spent the last two years traveling around Australia and the US on this epic climbing journey with his partner, someone who you know uh, from a previous Layback podcast episode, Ashley Hendy. Chris spent his formative years in Townsville, climbing with his two close friends, Steve Aonu and Chris Berwick. Together, the three of them form the Three Monkeys, and their combined psych pushed climbing in Townsville through a burst of development. Over their school and university years, they put up over 300 new lines in a range of different styles and pushed up the hardest grade of the area in the process. When Chris moved to Norway to study and work, his climbing didn't slow down. We touch a little bit on the climbing scene there, but mostly we dive into this story of an epic he got into while climbing in the Lofoten Islands. It's an experience where he describes himself as having got away with murder. It's a tense experience and it had a big impact on him. Uh, It's a story that really had me on the edge of my seat and I was glad to get it recorded into this podcast to be able to bring to you. We finish off the remainder of the podcast with a few anecdotal stories from Chris uh, from his most recent travel around Australia and the US, including getting stuck into a hailstorm on Freerider and his kind of knack for bumping into famous climbers. To start off though, Chris kicks it off with where it all started for him and Steve almost two decades ago in North Queensland. Let's get into it. All right, so let's let's kick it off. Um, uh, I'd like to start with your climbing origin story and how you discovered climbing in the beginning. Well, back when I was in high school, I met Steve Oonu and uh, he was really keen on going out to the rocks with uh, one of the outdoor education teachers. And he was running these courses every fortnight or so where we'd go up to a place called Mount Stewart just outside of Townsville and we'd do things like abseiling and um, a little bit of easy top roping. And initially Steve was super keen and was ready to, to buy the gear, but we were 13 at the time, so we didn't really have any money. So we just went along and uh, continued to go out with this guy. And we had a lot of fun, but after probably 12 months or so, we realized that, yeah, okay, abseiling's fun, but climbing upwards is a lot more fun. So. Um, that sort of started the journey and when we sort of begin to break away from, from this guy and the trips he was running. Yeah. So Steve bought a, I think at like one of those Falcon guides on how to top rope. So we had a 50 meter static and a bunch of steel beaners and a couple of slings and stuff like that. And just slung the boulders up the top of the playground at Mount Stewart and started top roping things. So. That's sort of where things started. 
So for the first three or four years, we weren't really heavily engaged and it was only an activity we'd do once or twice a month. Um, but towards the end of high school, that's when things started to pick up and we were going outside more frequently when Steve got his license. Because before that, our parents were just were a bit sceptical and so they'd mm. come along and take us to the crag and just supervise. Did they know what they were looking at though? Or? Yeah, I, I suppose they just thought it was just a teenage fad and it was probably going to pass at some point in time. But, you know, with the inherent you know, risks that, uh, with climbing, they were really keen to just come out and watch. And then after a period of time, they'd just drive us to the crag, drop us off yeah. and then come back later on that afternoon. But, you know, it's a bit of a drive, so they weren't so keen on that. <laughs> Um, so yeah, that's sort of how we got into it. And then the first maybe 18 months when we were, um, just starting out, there was a gym open in Townsville and there was this lady, I forget her name, but she was running these, um, short classes on how to build anchors and how to set up top ropes, how to play all this sort of stuff. So we learned a lot of stuff through her and, um, I assume Steve bought another book on, you know, how to lead climb and how to traditional climb. I had Freedom in the Hills at some point in time, but yeah, it sort of picked up from there. Yeah, okay. Um, but to give you some context, Townsville wasn't really well catered to beginners because there was... Uh, well, I won't say it's uh, run out there, but there are a lot of serious routes there, or a lot of mixed routes and probably not very beginner-friendly when we started climbing, there was perhaps maybe a, a, no more than a dozen sport climbs in the entire area, and then the, the other three, four hundred were mixed track or trad. Climbs, so, mixed or track, yeah. Yeah, yeah well, they weren't super beginner-friendly, but we sort of just started down the trad route. And mm. when we started um, going out by ourselves, and when Steve had his license, then we eventually crossed paths with some of the um, the old guard. Yeah. And uh, they sort of whipped us into shape and told us what we were doing wrong, etc. So who, who is the old guard? Like, I guess one thing I, I think you have a good perspective on is the Townsville climbing scene. You've written the, uh, uh, worked pretty hard on a, the guidebook for, I think it's Frederick's Peak, right? So That's right, um, yeah. Yeah. So you, and you, and you, so you know the history. What, what did it look like? What, what did it look like before you guys came along in terms of the Townsville climbing scene? What, what is the history there? When we started out, there was maybe perhaps a dozen people going out semi-regularly and climbing, but they were all sort of climbing fairly moderate grades, I suppose, on double ropes, doing the full, you know, triple rack, yep. um, you know, leave leave home with everything, including the kitchen sink. So when you're en route, you're prepared. And it, it's a very uh, formidable strategy to to survive up there, but really you can get away with a single rope and a single rack and and a lot uh, less and a lot less. Yeah. It was funny listening to your podcast with Neil Monteith. Yeah. Um, and he was talking about how he thought the scene in Brisbane was 10 years behind yeah. the rest of the country or the epicenters. Mm. I feel like we were 10 years behind Brisbane because no one was really, no, no one had a power drill. Yeah. And, there weren't really any lower offs or any of these modern amenities. So yeah, things were a bit different, but it was still, it was adventurous climbing. 
it was fun and it still is what what were the main climbing areas up there at that point in time so the major area was mount stewart yep and that's where you do all your rope climbing yep and there were a few other minor crags around probably not worth mentioning yeah but uh around 1999 a guy called dr madoc sheen discovered this place that he named hubby's marbles and it's this big boulder field of these these granite marbles just scattered on top of this tabletop and he went to work uh, with a guy called Steve Baskerville and developed several thousand problems and he's still bouldering there today so that sort of came about when we were just getting into it okay and did you guys take up bouldering you and Steve Um, we went out a few times yeah Um, but I, I guess we probably weren't strong enough to really appreciate the area so much so we were we had our work cut out for us just at mount stewart trying to top rope the 18s (laughs) (laughs) i want to talk about the the three monkeys and you've already talked about uh you and steve uh the three monkeys are pretty infamous in in queensland uh, with a lot of queensland climbers and certainly um i don't know about the townsville scene Um, but tell us, um, I guess, uh, who are the three monkeys? Because there's you and Steve. There's Steve, myself and Chris Berwick. So we're just good friends from high school. Steve and Chris had known each other since birth, virtually. Yeah. But I sort of came along later and Steve and I sort of got into climbing and then Chris started coming out and we all started uh, climbing and developing routes um, fairly early on. So. so you all went to the same school? We went to the same high school. Yeah. And then coincidentally, we also did the same degree at the same uni. So <laughs> we spent a lot of time together. Was that coincidence or was that planned? Um, I, I suppose we had influence um, amongst each other. So, yeah, we were all all into building stuff and yeah. you know, we ended up doing an engineering degree. So, yeah. How did climbing, I guess, evolve for the three of you? So the three of us were just climbing together quite frequently, but we were always looking to see if there was something new or something different to climb. We'd sort of done what we could do in the easy grades and we still wanted to push ourselves physically and and try and progress through the grades, but also we wanted to explore and see what else was around. Were you pushing it when you guys were young and you were out there in terms of your, your climbing? Unintentionally, we, we'd go out trad climbing and get on lead, but have no idea how to place gear or how often to place gear. Yeah. And I do remember one time I went out with Steve and we were doing this route at Castle Hill. And uh, I think for the entire pitch, which made, maybe it was... 30, 40 meters long, I slung two tufts of grass before I got to a natural anchor. And then Steve came up and he said, what the hell were you doing? And I said, well, I, I don't know. I just thought I'd, you know, place some protection. He was like, well, <laughs> wouldn't have done much. So I really like had no idea what I was doing, yeah. placing cams or, or nuts or anything. So I'm glad I didn't take any whippers. Another time we were climbing down at Kissing Point and uh, I got to the top and I was bringing Steve up on second and I'd slung this post, this fence post 
And then I, Steve came up again and he's like, what are you doing? And then he grabs the fence post and like rattles it like this. And it completely rusted at the bottom and was just sort of being held by like the top rail, which was just not going to hold anything really because it would have just slipped off from underneath. So yeah, we were definitely learning by doing no, no big accidents, fortunately. Yeah. Do you think that you had that uh, optimism of youth that kind of makes you feel a little bit bulletproof and yeah we were quite naive back then i think steve had his head screwed on right though and eventually went out and did like a lead climbing course and read a few books and yeah sort of taught me things because i probably wasn't <laughs> so interested in learning the nuances of how to place a cam yeah okay so yeah, that that was fun. That was fun. I really enjoyed those times. How did you guys learn to trace, trust your gear then? Like, was it... I think eventually when we were getting on things that were too hard, we sort of fell into this sort of aid climbing mode when you get halfway up and you realize, oh, okay, I can't climb anymore. It's too hard. Can't down climb. Just sit on a piece. So we just weighed a piece and then slowly learned what would hold and what didn't. Mm-hmm. And uh, you know, we'd test gear and then we'd set up top ropes with natural gear mm. and you'd slowly learn what was decent and what wasn't. Mm. Um, but yeah, there wasn't any big wingers being taken initially. And I'm not sure what sparked the idea, but we all sort of pitched in and bought a power drill and put up a route at Mount Stewart. That was your first route? Um, it, it's the first one I remember well, mm. and it, it was probably only grade 20 or something like that. How did the experience go? Uh, yeah, pretty well. Yeah. Steve, Steve learned from some of these old guys how to file carrots. Okay. Um, so in how, their how mind, to... <laughs> the only way to place bolts was just to place a carrot, a hangless carrot <laughs> sort of driven in. So so Steve sort of learnt the technique. I wasn't privy to it, but um, you know Steve would spend a good you know hour or more on each bolt. So they were precious. <laughs> <laughs> so and we we sunk maybe six or eight of them up at Mount Stewart, and yeah, that was kind of the start of it all. Did did you was that kind of then inherited ethic from I guess the people that taught Steve? Oh yeah, the, learning from these old guys. Um, the ethic was ground up, double ropes, on trad, um, only place a bolt if you absolutely yep. must. <laughs> anchor's really not necessary if there's a natural anchor. Yeah. Um, and don't fall also. Yeah. So we weren't really falling okay. in the early days. Uh, I've heard that, that you were kind of developing for a few years, the, the, the three of you um, doing routes like you just described. And then, uh, then Lee Kujes and Neil Monteith came in and, uh, and put up a lot of routes in a very short space time, like eight days or something. And, um, and that that influenced the three of you in kind of the ethic that they were practicing in other parts of the state. Yeah, that's right. They came up. Um, but before that, uh, we'd visited a few crags. We'd never really travelled much because we were sort of in our teenage years. But once we went down to the Blueys and Nowra, we saw what it was all about and thought, oh, yeah, this seems like a pretty logical way to do things. Okay, yeah. If there's no natural pro and, you know, if the route terminates halfway up the wall and you just put a lower off on it, 
So you'd seeing pictures and influences of climbing. You weren't just stuck in this little bubble in Townsville. Not necessarily yeah. like stuck in a bubble, but really void of that sort of influence from someone in the community. It was all this, yeah, it was just down south and that's what they do down there and we do our own thing up here. But uh, th- that doesn't mean that we can't just adopt their tactics. So you adopted those tactics from down south and started kind of bolting more sport mixed routes and... Yeah, and that's more right. Yeah, okay. Just wrapping in and then placing bolts on wrap rather than lead and just sort of sieging it rather than... Uh, Rather than going around up, so. rather than going around, how did how was that? I guess uh, received by the old garden council. Well, not well yeah. initially. <laughs> There's still one guy that gets a bit upset about it all, but I, I think we did what we could have done. We did our best, really. We went in, and if there was a mixed route, we put the bolts up on lead and then um, developed routes that way. But once we'd sort of reached I guess our mental limit or our physical limit in that respect, then we just started wrapping in and doing that for convenience sake. Yeah, the the scene was very quiet. Yeah. And then we sort of came along and we were very fortunate enough to be taken out by Andrew Rule and Mark Gomez and Nathan Bolton out to a place called Frederick Peak. Yeah. And at that point in time, you had to drive through private property to access the crag. And there was a lock on a big fat gate at the front of the property. And somehow they swindled a key from the landowner uh, with a bottle of whiskey or something. So the story goes. And then um, when Andrew Rule left town, he gifted us the key and that's sort of when it all started. And going to Frederick Peak was a real eye-opener and a, a really big shift in our understanding of, of what rock could be and what it can offer. So when you first started climbing, like, what seemed possible for you guys? Did, did you think you were going to progress this far? Yeah, so yeah, when we started climbing, grade 21 was, was like the pinnacle to me. Yeah. How are you ever going to climb that hard, let alone anything harder? I didn't know about you know, climbs above grade 25, I think was the max in Townsville at the time, which yeah. just seemed utterly unachievable. And no one was climbing those grades, so we didn't have any anyone to show us the way. Yeah. But yeah, it was uh, it was really interesting to see the progression and then realize, oh yeah, we can actually climb all these like mid-20s routes that were once sort of the pinnacle for Townsville. But yeah, like I said, we were sort of really behind the rest of the country in some respects because we hadn't had any um, particularly super strong guys come through. Uh, a guy called Scott Johnson, an American guy, developed a lot of like the, the harder routes in Townsville in the 90s. And then yeah. Douglas Hockley, who a former Natty resident, used to uh, live in Townsville for a number of years and wrote the guidebook in 99 and put up some of the harder routes. Um, but yeah, he moved on and sort of that talent left and we sort of had this void for quite some time. How, what was the hardest climb in Townsville then when you started? When I started, it was um, probably a route called Brutal, which I still haven't even tried. Really? On, on Magnetic Island. And it's one of Doug's routes. Yeah. 
So I think it's settled in around about 27. And that, and that is actually a trad line, a pure trad line. So it puts it in perspective that there really wasn't any sport climbing to be had, let alone hard sport climbing. Yeah. And uh, it took us quite a number of years to actually put up harder routes. But now there's, there's quite a few routes sort of between 29 and 32 now, so... With the hardest routes there at the time, the routes that you guys were putting up, like for example, if um, like let's say the hardest route you climbed was a twenty-seven, was there a twenty-eight to go to, or did you guys have to make no, it? No, we pretty much pushed it from twenty-eight upwards. Okay, to twenty-eight, nine, thirty, thirty-one, thirty-two, whatever. So yeah, we we're really sort of like breaking ground in a sense. Um, yeah, it felt like. The Wild West, in a way. Yeah. It, it was a lot of fun and it, it sort of held us back a lot in yeah. retrospect, I feel, yeah. because we, there was no one leading the way and we sort of just were cautiously yeah. trying new lines and seeing how hard they were and going for it. I was more up here, like drawn towards the, yeah. the aesthetic lines. Yeah. So we kind of went for those first. But then... But then sort of like the mixed lines started to dry up and mm. we just started to wrap in and bolt things. And yeah, it's, it's funny because some of the lines you think, oh, they're going to be absolutely stellar and the, the, the plum things at the crag are actually like not all that good. And then the yeah. obscure faces that someone bolts many, many years later actually turn out to be either some of the most popular or most classic lines. So that that was really cool going through that experience too. Yeah. And so, you you know, when you're, let's say, climbing 27 um, and you're trying to chase after that next grade, but there's not one to climb, so you have to make it. I mean, do, do you burn through a lot of potential routes before you find one at that grade? Like, how does that evolve? No, that we weren't aiming for a particular grade. Yeah, okay. We were just sort of going after the plums Yep. And then just working our way up the tree. And yeah. if it so happened that one of them was really hard, it was either like put on ice for a little while. Yeah. Or um, we'd, you know, go at it. Mm. And then some things turned out to be really hard. And yeah, mm. that's how it ended up. And I remember wrapping down uh, Supernova Wall with Steve for the first time. Supernova Wall is probably, it, it's quite a small wall. Mm. It's very narrow, but... It's probably one of the crown jewels at mm. Frederick Peak. And uh, we were sort of blown away. And we put the bolts in anyway. It's very easy for mm. for a developer to be like, oh, that's that's the line. It's not a visionary yeah. sort of exercise. <laughs> you just bolt whatever looks good. Yeah. There's nothing more than that. And we put the bolts in. I was like, oh, this is just this is way too hard. <laughs> I was probably climbing 23 at the time and it ended mm. up being about, well, I'd say it's probably closer to 29, but Steve gave it 28 with his um, with his knee bar beta, sneaky knee bar beta. <laughs> but it was, uh, yeah, it was pretty cool to be able to just have something there for the future. Yeah. And then it was finally climbed, I don't know how many years, three, four, five years later by Steve. Yeah. And that sort of opened our eyes a lot too. We, we just sort of went for broke and there was something that looked good you just try and bolt it no matter how difficult it was yeah some of those days up at fredericks are some of the 
the fondest I have. Yeah. Without a doubt. Yeah. Just going up and even if we weren't climbing, we were just fixing ropes and yeah. checking out the rock and yeah. um, goofing around at the base. It was, it was a lot of fun. Yeah. You, you essentially spend a lot of time in Townsville with, with, with your friends developing routes out there and, and climbing up there and then traveling the world. But at some stage you uh, uh, go to Norway, which is a, a little bit left field. What took you there? Um, good question. I mm. really enjoy the country. I think it's a beautiful place. And I'd visited Norway previously before okay. I decided to move there. Yeah. I also wanted to further my studies, so I went over there and, and did a master's degree. And I thought it would just be a bit of a change from just being in the Townsville region. And it turned out it was a it was a good decision in the end, and I was really happy I went over there. Yeah. Um, and I also wanted to spend some time in Europe, so I went over there and travelled around a bit. And Used it as a base. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, okay. Yeah. Did you speak Norwegian before you went there? Or? Not a word. Okay. Or maybe two. Or <laughs> you speak Norwegian now? I can. I haven't spoken in quite some time, but uh, at the time when I left, I was I was fairly competent. I suppose I could converse. Converse, hold down a conversation. Yeah, yeah. It was a really nice challenge. It was sort of a bucket list thing too. So, was Townsville the only place you'd lived in prior to going there? Um, I, I was born in Adelaide, so oh, sorry. I sort of spent the first eight years of my life in Adelaide. In Adelaide, oh, there yeah. you go. That I didn't was... come up in my research. <laughs> <laughs> you didn't look for my birth certificate, did you? Uh, I should have contacted births, deaths and marriages. <laughs> <laughs> well, I haven't been married either, in case you're wondering. <laughs> True. Um, but it's quite... quite quite a different culture i imagine to go from town to norway oh a huge shift yeah mm. yeah the climate the culture mm. and what the was the the i mean what was the the climbing scene like there when when many of us think about norway at the moment we probably just think of flat anger right yeah yeah that's probably the major destination particularly for sport climbers that's where everyone wants to go. But is that kind of the center of, of uh, Norwegian climbing culture or has it got a bigger background? It's fairly new. It's a new okay. crag. And, well, it, what, there were a few routes put up in the 90s there, I believe. Yeah. And then it sort of dropped off the map because everyone thought it was just too futuristic. And then I, I, I think it was Magnus Mitber, the famous Norwegian guy that um, went up there and bolted a few routes and it's sort of turned into a sort of world-class destination now. So historically, it, you know, it, it is fairly, fairly new and there's a lot of other smaller crags scattered throughout the country that are more historical and are probably more popular. What's the, do they have kind of a similar background to, say, Australia in terms of, you know, trad and, uh, and trad climbing? Yeah, absolutely, yeah. Sport climbing is also one of these, these fads that everyone thought was going to pass but didn't and then <laughs> all the old guys got upset, etc. Okay. So, yeah, there's a, a strong history, almost sort of British in a way, that very staunch ethic uh, of uh, trad climbing. So there's uh, there's sort of these group of rules for climbing in the mountains, and one of them is no bolts are to be placed. So if you're climbing sort of an alpine uh, alpine line or something on a cliff like really high up, then yeah, there's this blanket rule 
no bolts whatsoever. (laughs) (laughs) When you went to Norway and you experienced that, I guess, slightly similar but slightly different um, climbing culture, did did it make you kind of reflect on Australian climbing at all? Did you kind of, um, did you learn anything about yourself, I guess, going over there as a climber? And yeah, I, I think the climbing over there is is really quite committing at times. Mm. Particularly some of the sport crags mm. that were sort of bolted at the start of the sport climbing era, they're really quite spaced and, you know, probably like Taipan-esque in a way. Okay. And, yeah, climbing there was a really big wake-up call. Yeah. If you want to... If you want to make a name for yourself, don't go out and and grid bolt something. Yeah, okay. Yeah. Did you develop over there as well? Because you've come from Townsville, you're you're getting into developing and developing routes. I'm sure that didn't stop when you you went to Norway. Yeah, I I did do a little bit. Yeah. I didn't want to step on anyone's toes initially. Okay. So I I took it pretty easy the first couple of years, but I, you know, I freed a couple of old aid lines. And then after that, I think I started bolting a few things. And yeah, I, I only bolted in areas where it was sort of accepted. Okay. <laughs> uh, but yeah, that was a really interesting experience. And I think everyone was quite happy that I was getting out there and developing routes because it's the same as it is here. There's only mm. a small fraction of the community that's actively engaged in these activities. So okay. yeah, it was a, it was a lot of fun. And by the end, everyone was really helpful in wanting to take me out to certain places yeah. to have a look at or climb on and yeah, develop new crags. I understand one of the, the scariest moments for you while climbing happened while you're in Norway. You had a bit of Yeah, I had quite a few, but there's certainly one that sticks out. Um, I was up in Lofoten, which is this archipelago uh, at the top of Norway in the north. And I'd been climbing for about a week straight with a good friend of mine, Simon. Yeah. And we'd been doing a lot of multi-pitching and probably had climbed, oh gosh, I don't know, 40 or 50 pitches. <laughs> 40 or 50 pitches uh, in the last week or so. And we were pretty tired. Yeah. And I was leaving the day or two following. So we really wanted to get out and get on this route called Stuhlpilaren. And it sort of has quite a bit of a reputation for good reason. Yeah. But uh, the, <laughs> the timetable was a bit skew as it usually is in Lofoten because the sun's up 24 seven. Okay. And that day, I think we woke up around midday and had our breakfast and convened and decided that we wanted to go try this route before I was leaving Yeah. the, the next day. And it was, it was super late in the day and we met a couple other friends who also wanted to go up on the same section of cliff and climb there. Mm. So we all packed our bags, got in the car and drove around. And by the time we started hiking in to try Stuhlpilan, it was maybe 2.30 in the afternoon. And to give you some context, this route is about 18 pitches long, maybe 700 meters okay. high. And pretty sketch 
not so much the climbing, but the the approach and descent were extremely sketchy. So are we talking about ice, snow? Is it um, I mean, chossy? What, what's the rock like? This was at the end of summer. Okay. Um, but there was still a bit of snow melt happening. Mm. So there's all this choss like sort of raining down on the approach. Okay. And it was probably the sketchiest approach I've ever done in my life. But we finally reached the base of the route after about two hours. So what, like sketchy as in dodging falling rocks while you're, while you're going up? Or? Yeah, yeah. You sort of have to traverse along the mountainside, really sort of slippery, gravelly rubbish to get to the base of the route. The rock you're climbing on is actually really good, but <laughs> the approach is pretty, pretty chossy. And there's all this sort of stuff raining down on you all around you. Yeah. Um, so we got to the base of the route and it was maybe 4.30 in the afternoon and we were totally wrecked, but we set off and uh, we actually climbed the route really well in good time. Um, but the the clouds were sort of closing in and the weather was deteriorating and it was getting kind of cold. And when we got to the top of the route proper, you're sort of on this spire and we got there around midnight or something. Mm. And then you have to wrap down into this notch walk across the notch and then sort of climb out this other wall to to get on top of like the the main the main mountain and then you can kind of walk off yeah um so we wrapped down in this notch and we walked across to the base of this this wall uh and my friend simon said to me all right well you don't really have a choice in the matter you're doing this pitch and i said all right yeah yeah no worries i don't mind it's all been like pretty casual pretty so far. Um, but what I didn't know was um, this particular pitch was extremely notorious. Not because of its difficulty. It was only about grade 18. But it was virtually unprotected. So by the time I was tying in, all the mist was condensing onto the wall and it was soaked. It was completely wet. And is this is it like a slab or what? Yeah, it's, a, it's sort of a vertical crack, really easy, well protected section. And then you get to this hanging slabby arete uh, with no pro whatsoever. And from the start of that slab to the ledge was probably 15 meters or so. So. When I got to the base of that slab, I really started to worry because the wall was completely drenched. Um, I knew we were going to have extreme difficulty in retreating uh, down the route because we'd wrapped into this notch and, you know, with an overhanging wrap and climbing out would have been an absolute nightmare. And we, we were a long way from home. And also these other guys that we were climbing with, they were on a different route, but they were many pitches down. We didn't know if they were bailing already or how far along they were going to be. But these guys were really competent climbers. So I considered waiting for those guys to turn up so maybe they could lead the pitch. But as I was standing there, I thought, oh, yeah, I'll give it a go. What, what time of the day is this now? This is probably 12.30 or 1 in the morning or something. Okay, so you've been climbing for like eight hours at this point. Yeah. Yeah, we're pretty tired, out of food, out of water. We just had minimal clothing. It was probably about five degrees or something and the wall was drenched. 
So I'm standing at the bottom of this slab and I realize I need to try and chalk up and, and get going. But when I chalk my hands, I realize they just become wet immediately when I touch the wall. My shoes were wet, my hands were wet and the, the rock was wet. So I developed this bit of like rotational pattern where I was chalking, you know, these three points over and over and over. And I did that for like 20 minutes and it was like a race against the clock to try and dry my shoes enough and have enough chalk on my fingers and the rock so that it was dry enough for me to start climbing. And at that point, there was, there was a ledge maybe three meters below me, really super deep ledge with this sort of big chalk stone at the back of the ledge with a sling around it. It's kind of like just a token piece so you don't end up factor touring on the, on the belay. Um, but I would have hit that ledge and hurt myself immensely. So I, I had a lot to contend with. And it was probably the most mentally taxing experience of my life. I was extremely close to slipping off that thing. I slipped a few times actually, but luckily I didn't pitch. Yeah. But by the time I got to the top, and thankfully I did, because I probably would have shattered both my legs or my pelvis or something, I realized that I just pushed it way too far there. That was just unacceptable. I was really sort of upset with myself. Yeah. Huge adrenaline rush. So yeah. I bring Simon up and he was just in shock, you know. Um, that you'd climbed it. That I'd climbed it and I'd led that. And he was very happy that I had led it because that means <laughs> of we course, were getting of out course, of there. right? Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. But but like when you're actually climbing it, you, you, it's like 15 meters. And and what you've just got like legs either side of a of a of a um of like a slabby wet arete. Yeah, yeah. Not virtually no holds. I think there was a crimp maybe halfway up it, and then near the top of it, you sort of get this sort of flaky thing that you can kind of use. But certainly for the first eight or nine meters, I was just trying to full friction slab on this this wet arete. So it was pretty sketch and while you were doing it did you feel like you were going to make it to the top no it was more uh, i've really stuffed up yeah and okay. i have no choice i can't i won't I, there's no possibility to down climb this yeah i must continue yeah so so simon comes up and we continue on and then there was a couple of easy pitches and then some horrendous repels and the most dangerous descent I've ever done in my life. That's That would be an experience in itself. Mm-hmm. But we finally got down to a main trail where the tourists are. Mm. Um, not that there were any at 4.30 in the morning. No. But then we're, we're almost back at camp. We get this phone call and it's from our friend Torbjörn who was sort of acting as sort of the base camp manager because mm. he knew the seriousness of, of these routes. And what you were doing. But we sort of went in there willy-nilly and just thought we'd get away with it um so he was happy to know we'd made it down but he he said oh the guys they're at the base of that pitch it's called the arete of death and they this couldn't is, climb it this is the pitch you climbed yeah that was a pitch i should have mentioned that before <laughs> that it's <laughs> called the arete of death it's called dead's which means the arete of death and fortunately no one's actually died on it but uh, these guys were at the base of that pitch 
and they'd both attempted to try and climb it but backed off Hmm. but these guys are really competent climbers they've climbed 514 on gear and uh you know 9a and that sort of thing but they sort of had the smarts to back off this pitch Hmm. so we get finally make it back down into camp i crash my tent being completely flattened thanks to the wind it wasn't really a nice welcome home anyway i get up the next morning and sophia god bless her had made me a coffee and i saw hey how's it going the sun was out the sun was shining everyone was having a good time and i ask what's going on and they're like oh the guys are still up there and i look up to the the mountain and there's this big fat dark cloud on top of it and i thought oh yeah that's a bit bit shit um but they decided to call a rescue but uh throughout the day the chopper couldn't get in because of the heavy cloud cover um so they had to spend a night up there without any food or decent clothing They'd only taken a single rope because they were sort of doing a <laughs> bit of an alpine ascent. So they didn't have the possibility to retreat. And fortunately, we, we had double the ropes when we were up there. That's what everyone usually does. But these guys were going fast and light and sort of got caught out. Mm. And so I flew home. And then 36 hours later, the, the chopper pulls them off the, the mountain. And that sort of made me realize that I'd really stepped over the line mm. and I probably shouldn't have. Mm. And that kind of has, has shaped me a lot, I suppose. Since and, then? Yeah, I think so. Yeah. Yeah, I've taken a step back and and realized that, yeah, it's just not worth the risk. Yeah, okay. I got, I got away with murder, essentially, it feels like. Yeah. Really close to the line. Very close to the line, yeah. But, you know, like I mentioned, the, the mountain rules say no bolts. One bolt probably would have made it safe enough that no one would hurt themselves yeah. catastrophically. But, but yeah, How do you feel about bad. that? I, I think if it was dry on a nice sunny day, that pitch probably wouldn't feel too bad. Yeah. But it's still an X-rated pitch. Yeah. Um, it, it's a fine line. If you start putting in a bolt here or there, then it's it's going to escalate. Mm. And just thinking about what Jerry Narkowitz did at Ben Lomond, I think I think that's a positive thing to mm. draw the line in the sand and say, "All right, we're not going to put bolts in." This is the the Irish solution. Yeah, yeah, yeah he, pretty is much. He, yeah. As he called it online, I believe. <laughs> So for for the sake of listeners, you want to explain? I'm not aware of the impetus, but I believe that there were a few rap stations on some of the routes up at Ben Lomond on Fru's Flutes. Hmm. And Jerry decided to chop them because he didn't want a situation where everyone thought it was acceptable to come in and and place bolts wherever they thought Hmm. they were deemed necessary and didn't want it to turn into a... Mount Wellington where there's sort of a lot of bolted arets and faces and that sort of thing. And mm. um, I, I think that was a positive decision because it's a special place up there and mm. and uh, I really admire what Jerry did there. Mm. Yeah, it's a good thing. But uh, on the other hand, you can easily argue that it's, that it's reckless or it's mm. inconvenient. But you feel it comes down to the individual climber to make that decision or...? 
I, I honestly think it's, it's best to make these decisions early on in the game. And if there's particular areas that, that are special or within certain areas or up high in the mountains, then maybe they shouldn't be grid bolted. Hmm. Yeah, there's, there's enough of that in like the blueies, for example. If you want to go to clip bolts, you can go there. But, you know, maybe give trad climbers their little space up in uh, northern Tassie preserve experiences for every every climber right absolutely yeah Yeah, that's the idea going back to the arete of death do you think that in a way that experience could have saved your life in that it's created such a impact on you that you wouldn't push that close to the edge ever again probably it's quite possible that yeah, that experience really shook me up that it and slowed me down and took me away from that sort of really sketchy climbing. A couple of months previous to that mm. trip uh, on the Arete of Death, <laughs> I was climbing in Buislen on this route called Electric Avenue mm. and I was maybe about a third of the way up, maybe 10 or 12 metres. Mm. I took a fall and I was quite run out at the time and I ripped two pieces and the third piece partially caught me and fortunately that piece sort of also pulled me off to the side because there was a bit of a traverse mm. that mm. I just completed and I sort of landed on this little grassy patch the only sort of soft area <laughs> in, in the entire area beneath this climb so I sort of hit the the grassy patch I landed on my belayer partially and I sort of hit the wall as well so the combination of those three factors sort of slowed me down enough that I didn't really injure myself mm. catastrophically but I ended up breaking my heel and that sort of shook me up a little bit but not enough yeah I don't know why I continued to do what I did following that accident but my belayer she um credit to her she carried me out from the crag on her back and yeah <laughs> went to hospital and <laughs> got it sorted out yeah but the the it's interesting that the experience on the red of death where you came away unscathed mm. you find more impactful than the experience where you actually physically got hurt and you broke your ankle yeah i feel like i i came closer because if i had slipped then i would have fallen god knows how far but the terrain was particularly unfriendly for for falls of that nature so mm. yeah next time i'm up there i'll probably in a similar situation if i mm. ever do find myself then yeah i'll know what to do back off and call for the helicopter or <laughs> or, or <laughs> yeah yeah that's like that, that's an option yeah. <laughs> no you don't think you'd do it or do you think you'd no, I, I think that's, um, I'd probably just retreat. But considering the, the special circumstances of that route, mm. it'd be particularly difficult to retreat, but not impossible. Yeah. But yeah, I think you wouldn't really experience a situation like that in Australia, I'd imagine. Yeah. Um, you never know, but um, yeah, retreat's fairly simple and it's very much uh, recommended. <laughs> <laughs> You also, um, you put up uh, probably what your hardest climb to date, a uh, first ascent um, when you were in Norway. Oh yeah, that was, yeah, a couple of, 
years ago now. Yeah. But yeah, that was all bolted and quite safe. And quite safe. Yeah. So you enjoy both aspects of climbing then? Oh, certainly, yeah. yeah. I, I'd probably label myself as a a boulder in a trad climber's body. Okay. <laughs> so I'd like to, I'd like to do powerful moves between rests on gear, I suppose. That would be, that's the dream. That's the dream, yeah. Um, but yeah, I sport climb. I love to sport climb. But yeah, yeah. I just love to cycle through the different disciplines and, and mm. try them all out. Yeah, yeah. It's fun. And I hear that you trained with Adam Andre in Norway. Uh, well, I, I don't know if I'd call it that, but uh, when we were up in Flatunga, uh, Adam Andre was there at the time and mm. he spent a lot of time there. But at that time, he was working a route called Move and he was getting bloody close. But he was sort of complaining that he was getting weak because he hadn't been training and there wasn't really any training facility in the in the vicinity and we were coming down from the cliff one day and I was like oh you know what are you up to like in passing and he's like oh I'm gonna go training you want to come and I was like all right well if Adam Andra asks you do, do you want to go training then you, you don't say no so we went into this barn this old dusty barn and there's nothing there's nothing in there it's just completely vacant. So he just grabs um, the beam across the top of the, the doorway and just starts doing pull-ups and like really sort of dynamic pull-ups. And so he did that for sort of half an hour and that was his, what he considered training for the evening. And this was after, you know, a 12-hour day at the crag. He, he just doesn't stop. He doesn't stop. He's... He's pretty incredible to watch, not only because he can climb bloody hard and fast, which is also impressive, but he uh, he just climbs all day long. Hard. Hard, yeah. He, he'll warm up on whatever, like an A-day or something, and then go try his project. And then he'll take four hours rest. And I thought when he said four hours rest, I was like, oh, that's a remarkably long time to be resting. But, you know, a lot of people do that if they're trying something extremely uh, pumpy or whatever. But in that four-hour period, he'd run like a dozen laps on eight Bs to stay warm. <laughs> <laughs> so how do you train for climbing normally? I, I just go climbing, really. I've never really trained at all. Over in Norway, you don't have much of a choice but to go inside over the winter. Mm. So, you know, once or twice a week, I'd go into the bouldering gym and just muck around in there. But I've never had like a strict training regime. What impact do you think your time in Norway had on you? Um, well, I, I think in general, the, the culture there is, is um, pretty sweet. Everyone's very humble and down to earth and... Um, yeah, you get to you get to see a different perspective because uh, everyone loves to travel within Europe, mm. but they're also very tolerant of other cultures, and that that can be a bit um, quite a contrast to, to Australia here in parts. Mm. So I think I think Norway taught me a lot about um, being outside and making the most of your time. Mm. Because the weather can be quite bad a lot of the time. Here in Australia, you can climb every day of the year if you want. But over there, it can blow a gale or it'll be a hailstorm or snow flurry or something. Or it'll be minus 15 outside. 
So come the summertime, the Norwegians just love to run out and be outdoors 24-7 and it's quite tiring. Yeah, okay. So you spend the whole winter recovering. <laughs> <laughs> what led you to leave Norway in the end? Oh, there was there was a lot sort of pushing and pulling me there. Yeah. And away and I, I, I guess ultimately I wanted to see my family more. I hadn't really seen much of them and yeah, I felt like I'd sort of done my time over there and the fairy tale was slowly... Coming, coming to an, an end because you've been there for about what five years was it you were yeah there? almost five years in the end yeah. i think yeah i probably spent five there five yeah. years in total yeah. in norway yeah okay so now i'm back back in oz <laughs> back in oz but what after norway you it's not like you went back to work you just kind of went into uh what like a, a nomadic period so to speak or you you didn't go back and work full-time I I thought about it, hmm. but I wanted to take a little bit of time off. I'd never really spent much time climbing in sort of southern Australia. I decided that that would be, uh, be a nice experience to take a couple of months off and, and just climb and travel around and see the place a bit. And then that sort of dragged out. <laughs> I thought it might be six months, but it turned into two years. And I've been extremely fortunate to have been able to do that. And so I've done a lot and climbed a lot in the last two years. It's been, it's been fantastic. Chris mentioned when I caught up with him in prepping for the, for the interview, um, the three monkeys kind of have this philosophy around mini retirements and maybe like rather than waiting until uh, we're old and decrepit that, that you'd take some time off every few years out of work to, to go climbing. Is that uh, Chris's philosophy or is that... Is it a philosophy of the group? I, I think it is of the group, yeah. We want to try and maximise our time, uh, you know, in our 30s now and hopefully in our 40s before maybe succumbing to injury or, or life. And my dad always used to say to me that life is a compromise and that's quite pessimistic in a way, but it is. <laughs> it makes a lot of sense. You have a choice to to do what you want to do in this day and age. We're extremely fortunate. So I thought, you know, bar a home loan or a unplanned pregnancy, I can pretty much do whatever I want. So uh, the two years wasn't really planned, but I thought six months seemed like a reasonable amount of time to yeah. take off and indulge. Yeah. And, and so you, seek, you set out to indulge. Where's the first place you go upon returning to Australia? The Rapalese, of course. Of course. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. We, we went there. A friend of mine from Norway, Torstein of the Garden, uh, came over to visit and we spent several weeks out there and then travelled around the Grampians as well. So that was that was a really fun experience for me because I've never really climbed in the Wimmera mm. before, bar maybe a week or so Yeah, many years ago. So it was a fantastic experience to to go out and meet all these characters that I've heard so much about and try all these routes that have these reputations. It feels like every second route at Arapiles has some sort of reputation. <laughs> and then, you know, some of that's unfounded, of course. But yeah, it's, it's fun to just go out and climb Watchtower or Muldoon. Yeah. I have just as much fun doing that as I would, you know, climbing a route at my limit. Yeah, yeah. 
So yeah, I started off in the Grampians and then and then sort of worked my way north to see the folks up mm. in Queensland. Mm. And so I stopped in a few places along the way. Yeah, okay. Just tasting the various climbing delights that Australia has to offer. Bit of a Whitman sampler. Yeah, yeah okay. It was oh. good. Yeah. And how long did that go on for? Well, I I went up to Townsville for the winter because that's where you really want to be in the winter time there or Tassie, I suppose. And then um, worked my way south again, wanted to be in the Grampians and then I sort of eventually found myself there. And yeah, that sort of dragged out to the end of the year virtually. Yeah. And uh, yeah, I was just having too much of a good time, I suppose. To, to give it up. Yeah, yeah. It's a, it's a good life. Yeah. And were you just living out of a van or how did you? Yeah, I had, I had a little van that I was living out of. It was yeah. uh, nothing special, but yeah, I did the trick. Yeah. It's falling apart by the end of it. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, that sort of got me through quite a lot. Yeah, okay. Is that how you met Ash? Uh, no, we, we'd met previously yeah. on a previous climbing trip, but we only sort of started climbing together when I... Uh, we met up in Victoria when I came over in 2018. So then we, we got together eventually, and then she was sort of... Um, seeing what I was doing and was thinking oh she'd like to take some time off too and she'd sort of been in a situation where she'd worked very hard for many years and thought it was time to take some time off so she wanted to go to the States and that's what we did Mm. packed the bags and and flew over so on that trip um, you um I was saying you, you flashed a, a climb called Latter Day, was it Sinners? Yeah, yeah, that's right, yeah. And there's a bit of a story behind behind this uh, uh, this flash. Because you was, had a bit of a famous audience, I understand. <laughs> that was a memorable day. Um, not because the route was particularly special, but uh, who was there that day. I was up in this place called the Cathedral at Welcome Springs in southwestern Utah. And uh, I was just doing a couple of warm-up routes. And then all of a sudden, Alex Honnold rocks up. And I sort of just, like, put my head down and, you know, didn't, didn't want to make too much of a scene and just continued on climbing. And, and then um, at one point, I didn't really know what I was going to do. And then Ash was like, oh, how about you try that route that was recommended to you the other day? And I said, yeah, why not? So I just pick up the rope and walk over. And I must have said something like, oh, yeah, I'll just... You know, I'll just give it a go. And I uh, put the rope down. And I sat down to get ready. And then this guy comes over and he says, Hi, I'm Alex. Do you want the beta? And it took a moment for me to process what was going on. Two things went through my mind. The first thing was, Hey, that's Alex Honnold. What's he doing speaking to me? <laughs> and then the second thing was, who does this guy think he is approaching a stranger and asking if they want beta? I, I thought that was that was pretty big of him to do that. Jeez, what a guy! But of course, but of course, you're not going to say no. Yeah. And you know, it was going to be well beyond my on-site yeah. ability. So I thought. So he spent the next ten minutes explaining the beta to me, which was uh, which was pretty cool. And then, so I just tied in and, and climbed and I got through the first crux miraculously and I got to sort of rest halfway up the route and there was another boulder problem to the anchors. 
And I was sort of hanging out there for a while and then Alex starts climbing um, a route adjacent to me. And then I sort of begin to climb too and he realises that I was about to enter sort of the crux of the route. So he races up to this no hands rest and he's maybe, you know, 10, 15 feet away from me sort of, you know, reiterating the beta, yelling it at me. As hey, he's climbed up alongside you to, to like talk you through the beta while you're climbing. Well, no, he was he was attempting this route called Golden Direct, I think. Okay. But he was he realised that oh yeah he could take a take a break at this no hands rest and and talk me through it because he was just at the same height as me, so that was pretty cool. And I fought as hard as I've ever fought in my life, and then I finally somehow scraped through and clipped the anchor. I came down in shock. <laughs> <laughs> And that, and that's sort of my uh, experience with Alex Honnold was him uh, giving me the beta. So that was that was pretty special. That's cool. What did he say once you you know did he did he say anything afterwards? Oh, he just said like, oh, good job, that was awesome. I'm like, I have no idea. Like, that's why. <laughs> it's like <laughs> it's your hardest, my best performance ever on rock. <laughs> so now all you need to do is just drag Alex Honnold around with you, and that's your secret trick to performing at a very yeah, high well, level. Yeah, well, I almost did it again, and I fell off like near the top of this other twenty nine that he was coaching me through too. So I was like, far out, this guy. Like, yeah, I just need him to tell me everything to give coach me the you for America. <laughs> He probably just climbed every single route anyway, so yeah, he knows it all. Chris Barrett came over as well, and I uh, understand yes. you guys had a uh, um, uh, crack at uh, freeing the free rider on the El Cap, um, and got into uh, an epic, basically. Yeah, yeah, we had a bit of an ordeal up there. We Chris really was keen to come over and get on free ride. I said, "Hell, why not? Let's do it." Yep. He booked his flights for late May or something, but mm. turns out it was just a horrendous time to come. It was raining. It was snowing in the valley in late May, which is unseasonal. Mm. The worst weather imaginable. But there was sort of this tiny weather window at the end of his, uh, his stint in America. So we thought, oh, hell, we'll go up. Why not? Um, but it was quite clear that the wall was very wet. And in hindsight, it was a terrible idea because it was soaking up there. So day one, uh, we set off really early in the morning and I made it up to the Alco, which is the top of roughly pitch 19, just above the monster off width. Okay. And we probably got there around midnight and I was absolutely knackered. Uh, I was so physically worked. I really just didn't know if I could, you know, go on the next day, but... We had something to eat, went to sleep and woke up in uh, excruciating pain from just that thrashing of a day we had on day one. And I sort of said to him, hey, look, I just, I don't think I can physically continue today. Can we like take a rest day? And he was like, yeah, yeah, that sounds all right. Hmm. And it was quite obvious because the next pitch was just running with water. Um, but I looked down below and I could see two people moving really quick across mammoth ledges. And I was like, huh, that's a bit strange. Um, they must be trying to do it in a day or something. And then above us, there were a couple of photographers wrapping in Tara Kersner and Anna Faf or whatever her name is. 
And they came down to the ledge and they were super stressed. And we're like, what's going on? And they're like, oh, we're really late. We're meant to be filming Emily. She's trying to do Golden Gate in a day. So this is when Emily Harrington was trying to, uh, to free that route uh, in one push. And then about half an hour later, like she pops up and then, um, you know, there's sort of six or seven of us on the ledge just chilling out. And Alex Honnold was there as well. <laughs> Alex Honnold's there. Yeah, she, he he was the support for family, so he was jugging after her ah. and uh, blaming her, etc. So she just pops up and he... And he just pops up and I was like, oh, hey, it's good to see you again. Like, this, 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 <laughs> several weeks after I'd, saw, I'd seen him at uh, the cathedral. So that was cool. So we had a good time, but I, I really just wanted to know what Emily was going to do with this mm. next pitch. And... Uh, she gets on it and proceeds to have an absolute epic trying to climb this, you know, soaking wet 510C or whatever it was. Mm. And I, I really just didn't want to do that. I wasn't keen and there were more storms forecast for that that evening. So I thought, oh, yeah, this is kind of, yeah, this is not looking good at this point in time. So we were just chilling out in the afternoon waiting for things to try and dry up in the sun. And then um, Emily tries to do the down climb pitch, which is the, the next pitch. Couldn't do it. And then just starts bailing. Um, so the whole team was bailing down route. And we were up there and we really didn't know what to do. Oh, if we continue, we wait another day or whatever. So we're just sitting around. And then after about half an hour, this massive hailstorm hits us with these huge like golf ball sized hail just slamming down on us. Luckily we had some protection and just had a tarp to hide under it while the, the whole, the hailstorm came through and the ledge we were on, um, built up maybe, maybe a foot. So maybe 30 centimeters of hail in about 30 minutes. So it was ridiculous. And then, uh, then that blew through and the sun came out again and it was just all fine and dandy. And then we looked up at the route and it was just running with water. This is waterfalls, these big streaks, you know, five meters wide down the route. So we were like, oh, well, this is, this is done. Better bail. So we bailed and about halfway down, we got hit by another storm and that was really, really sketch. Yeah. I really felt like that was, that was one of the more dangerous things I've done. Yeah. Okay. Because uh, well, you're wrapping on these stiff mm. statics that are soaked on a gree-gree and they, you're either like slipping through at a million miles an hour or jammed up and wrapping with 30, 40 kilos of bag weight underneath you is, is pretty difficult. And by the time we got down, um, we were completely drenched and the base of El Capitan was a running river. Uh, I kid you not, it was, it was unbelievable how much water was being funneled down off that, off that mountain. So yeah, that was the end of that one. <laughs> well, what do you think helped you build up that, I guess, fortitude to hang out on a ledge like that for two days, just in really like full on weather conditions. And, and I mean, you've got other experiences which we could talk about, but there's a lot of experience in your climbing where you're, you seem quite comfortable to be uncomfortable, so to speak. Oh, maybe to some degree, yeah, but not to the extent like I would, I'd never go to Patagonia and try and do a big wall route there or 
I'm, I'm baffin. I don't think I'd be able to hack it, honestly. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm more of a fair weather climber, like old Hans, I suppose. But yeah, I have I've done a lot of big climbs and and uh, yeah, had to deal with uh, exhaustion and exposure. Yeah, I, I think it's just uh, just a matter of time of getting used to it. It's the only way you can really adjust, yeah. and adapt. What impact do you think having taken two years out just to climb had on your climbing? Um, well, I wasn't really chasing grades. I probably could have spent a lot more time um, trying harder things. But I've definitely become a better climber across a, a broader range of, of styles. So, yeah, it's definitely been helpful. Hmm. But depending on where and when you climb, I think you could definitely go backwards depending on your... Yeah. your physical state some places you'll you'll end up doing a lot of easy multi-pitching and mm. really not progress in that in that physical sense so much mm. uh, but yeah I, I'm sure if I had locked myself away for two years and in some sort of training den then I would have been a lot stronger than I am now yeah but I would have not enjoyed it at all <laughs> <laughs> How, so you obviously stayed on the road for a while you enjoyed it for two years how did you keep the site going it was hard at the end yeah. absolutely i think having a few sort of lifelong dream destinations at the end of the trip really helped keep the site level high yeah and try not to do too much of it you it's really a balance and you got to find out what works for you and and how many days on and off and what to do in the rest days. Some areas can be absolutely phenomenal to hang out in mm. and some areas are boring as shit yeah. if you're resting. So you got to think of that too. Yeah. But yeah, but by the end, I think in the last couple of weeks, I was really trying to force it. Yeah. Because I knew, oh yeah, I'll be going back home, going back to work, won't have any time to climb. So you, you may as well do it, but I really just didn't want to. Yeah. But I think depending any length of trip, people would feel like that so yeah well you've been back at work now for a week right barely barely have you already planned the next trip or the next not the next sabbatical or is that going to take a little bit while of time before you yeah I'm, i'm quite content just uh getting back into a routine but there certainly will be trips in the future do you think that you'll eventually find your way back to townsville you know like they said people travel all the way around the world only to, to go back to where they grew up. Could you see that happening for you? Absolutely. Yeah? Yeah, it's a great place to live. And whatever I disliked about Townsville that pushed me away, I've completely forgotten about. So <laughs> I'll, I'll be more than happy to go back. That's it, Australia. Thanks for tuning in to episode number 10 of the Layback Podcast. Thanks to Chris for sitting down with me and, you know, telling us his stories. Uh, I really enjoyed sitting down and chatting to Chris. Often uh, these podcast recordings take three hours because we just end up uh, talking about a, a range of different things and, and I try and trim it all back, cut the fat out and, uh, and give you the, the best of it. But it was a really enjoyable time chatting with Chris and, uh, and I hope that really came through in this podcast. If you haven't already, you can head over to thelayback.com where I have links to the Layback YouTube channel. You can watch videos of these interviews. I actually film uh, most of them and, uh, and you can watch them over there if you want to. 
Uh, also on that website, you'll find photos that I include from every interviewee, uh, from, from their, their personal collections. And I also will include in this instance, a link to Christopher Berwick's Vimeo channel. He has produced a whole raft of videos over the years of the three monkeys climbing experiences in various countries. Actually, at some point, I'm going to try my best to get a group interview with the three monkeys all sitting together riffing off each other in the one podcast but until then go and check out their vimeo channel uh, especially if you want to see some of the climbing in townsville that they've been getting up to over the years now to take us out I have this little clip from one of Chris Berwick's videos of when they're in road AR and Christopher Glastonbury uh, stops mid-route because his phone is ringing and he answers it. And who's on the phone? No one else but his mum calling from Australia. Thanks for listening. Classic nomads. On the on-site. Good, um, can you please tell me that in five minutes? Who are you talking to on that phone? What's he writing on that pad, no man? My mum. <laughs> <laughs>